Good evening and welcome to Legal Glass Ceilings, the podcast about how lawyers become lawyers, how they function as lawyers, and what are the barriers of talented young people becoming lawyers. My guest this evening is somebody who I have been in chambers with previously. Uh, it's Dr. S. Chelvan. Chelvan is proud to be an activist lawyer. He has specialized for a number of years and is recognized as a true specialist in the area of immigration with particular focus on the rights of LGBTQ+. And I'm going to refer them to the rights of people who are queer because that's what Kelvin wants me to call it. He is an absolutely superb example of someone who uses the law to advance the interests of the most marginal, the most disadvantaged, the most vulnerable. He's proud to do so and is proud to be an activist lawyer. And Kelvin, welcome to Legal Glass Seedling Podcast. Thank you, David. What, what an intro. <laughs> <laughs> All entirely justified. Chauvin, can I take you back? Why did you choose to use your considerable talents to be a lawyer? Well, for, for me, it wasn't really um, a choice to be a lawyer. It was a choice to be able to empower myself as a human being. You know, I, I, I am proud to self-identify as a queer person of colour, first-generation immigrant, non-Oxbridge, predominantly state school educated, you know, all the non-traditional boxes you could tick, apart from gender um, and gender identity. But uh, most of the boxes, I mean, Equal Opportunities Officers have a field day with me. They, you know, there am I presenting a, a sort of the kaleidoscope of uh, identities. But for me, I came, to, you know, I was born in Sri Lanka, came to the UK when I was four years old in 1978. There were, I'm a Tamil by ethnicity and there were anti-Tamil riots in Colombo in 77, 78. And my mother was already here doing her postgraduate as an anaesthetist. And my father and mother decided that Sri Lanka was no longer a safe country for my brother and I to bring up two boys. So luckily for, for them, because, you know, they did not know anything about asylum or refugee status, they could piggyback my mother's visa status here in the UK and, and come over here in September 1978, some 40 years ago. Now, for me, it's all about difference and public service. So I come from a family where public service is very, very important. So my mother predominantly worked in the NHS. You know, for her, it, it, what, there was no real choice. It's about being out there. And, and if you want to change the world, you have to be part of that change. And growing up in then Portsmouth and then Coatfield, Burgess Hill and then Worthing, my brother and I were one of the very few, if at all, non-white faces. But we were brought up with a very strong sense of identity you know, being Tamils from the Dravidians, you know, the Indus Valley civilization. So we, we were told to be proud of who we were. So that's a very strong sense of identity. And I very much believe that quote by Francis Bacon and Thomas Hobbes, you know, knowledge is power. So to be able to educate, to be able to inform, to get over hurdles was part of my, my upbringing. Um, and then at 14, 14 was quite an interesting year for me because, you know, my mother was a doctor, I was the eldest son, um, I was expected to go into medicine. And my mother said, well, look, you've done all this, you know, work experience with GP surgeries and all that sort of stuff. So why don't you just think of something new? So Chatsmore Catholic High School in Worthing, 14 years of age, went to my careers officer and I said, you know, let's do something in the law. So I, I worked out at a, a barrister and the, the legal class at Worthing Magistrate School. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I thought, this is what I want to do. It's a panacea, you know, absolute road to Damascus moment. I thought, I love advocacy. You know, I, as you know me, David, I'm not a shy, retiring wallflower sort of type of person. Um, so for me, it's, it's all about advocacy, performing. You know, the bar is full of failed actors. I mean, you know, to give you another example, 1983, when I was nine years old at 
at Wilfrid Primary School, you know, I played Santa Claus. You know, I was a, you know, a, a non-white Santa Claus in a school play in a primary school play because my skills were acting. It, it gave me the skills like, you know, if you can show through merit, you can do things you want to do. You can overcome those, those barriers, break the glass ceiling. So I, I came home and I told my parents, I don't want to do medicine anymore. I want to become a barrister. Uh, and the look on my mother's face just showed me everything. She was completely crestfallen. And, and the, you know, the agreed agenda, because, of course, you know, I'm 14. Of course, I've got to listen to what my parents say. Now, I do medicine and then go to the bar, which, you know, my careers teacher was just looking at me like, you're absolutely mad. But also at 14, I realised I was different for other reasons as well. And um, for me, I came from, you know, as I said, I went to a Roman Catholic school. My father's was Catholic. He passed away years ago my mother's a Hindu and sex was never on the agenda you know the point that you know a lot like a lot of even modern day Asian families is about you know you go to university and then you'll get married but then I realized that I was different in another way because I decided well learned that I had feelings and attractions to people of my own gender and that was a watershed moment for me because I knew that my trajectory as planned by my family was medicine get married to a nice Tamil Sri Lankan girl and carry on the family tradition and I suddenly realized you know I had no choice I didn't realize I was straight I never had any sexual attraction or feelings towards women so it wasn't a, a straight young man becoming gay it was me as a human realizing my feelings my attractions my emotions were suddenly towards the same gender and thank god for Derek Jarman and late night channel four movies in the 80s that's all I could say so you know, and I, I think in footnotes, so, you know, 22nd of April, 1989, for me, I did have a date that Derek Jarman, Sebastian, and there it all fell into place. Suddenly I knew who I was. Um, and I realised that that would cause the end of my family life, my connections to my family, because it would break them. So I had to start living this double life, this double life where I was going to do everything which was expected of me uh, as a obedient eldest son going into medicine but realizing that at one point this would all disappear it would break uh, it, it, there would be no resolution and it got harder and harder especially with adolescents to have those feelings and of course you know these were the 80s and 1989 april was just after what was clause 28 section 2a of the local government act came into force and i went to the Roman catholic school and i had this a horrible religious education teacher who talked about homosexuality being a sin. And then I had this amazing English language teacher called Mrs. Clark, and she knew who I was. She knew me. And in those days, there was no such thing as brown culture or black culture. It, I learned about my identity as a political activist, as a human being, through black American writers, such as Alice Walker and James Baldwin. And she gave me those books at 14 which, you know, I, I think she would have been in a lot of trouble if she'd done that now, because it was the first time I read in Colour Purple of a woman giving, kissing another woman. And it, yeah. and it was a light bulb movement. And, she, and of course, I knew that for some, and I don't know how I knew that I couldn't talk to her about who I was, but she knew who I was. So she, it's through reading, through learning about myself. I mean, the social science section of Worthing Library was never so busy. <laughs> For every summer, I was reading about these men who liked other men. And it was always about the public schools. There was no generation. So then when I went to university and I ended, long story, but I ended up doing civil engineering. And then along my civil, a very good lesbian friend of mine says, Chong, you're not really a civil engineer. And then I had this opportunity to change courses and I would start doing politics and law because I decided 
that, you know, I need, you know, this was a time where there was no equal age of consent. There was a ban on openly lesbian and gay people serving the armed forces. There was no such thing as employment anti-discrimination laws, or let alone civil partnership or marriage. But at Southampton, we had an anti-discrimination um, policy. And the armed forces used to come to the careers fair. And I, as a gay person, couldn't approach them to get work experience. So I said something's wrong. And I was a, pretty much a student activist by that time. Can and- I just interrupt you for a moment? Because one point I think that I'd like to hear your views on is this, that I grew up half a generation before you. I left school in 1978. And the attitudes that we now have about people who are different were fundamentally different from how today's generation growing up. Talking to my children, they think that the idea of being prejudiced against people because they are gay is absurd. It's not, they just cannot understand the mindset of how people used to be. But you and I are in the transition generations where we started with one set of attitudes and then saw them change through our adult life. But, but it's fascinating that you're-, you're David, this is a myth, isn't it? Because I, I, I love the way you say transition, because we're now seeing full circle with trans rights and gender identity. Yeah, people have to learn hate. You know, that's why I was saying, giving the example of when I was a child, being my brother and I being the only non-white kids at, at school, there was no, I was never called a racist jive. There was no, you know, my nickname at school was Boffin because I used to like studying, I liked learning, yeah? And, and so, so therefore I never had the, the terms of Paki or, or the other expletives which were used in relation to, to hate. And I was able to hide my feelings towards you know, when girls used to approach me and stuff like that, I said, sorry, not interested. I'm having an arranged marriage. It was the best cover ever <laughs> in relation to being different in, in, in that way. And what you say about your sons is because they're privileged. You know, in a lot of places in the UK, there is still rampant homophobia and bigotry. Yeah. So so we, we say that we talk about the younger generation. Yes and no. And we're seeing the rise in relation to the anti-difference agenda um, with, this, I mean, not specifically in relation to the younger generations, but we see with this, with transphobia at the moment as well. And, and that's one of the big battlegrounds which I work with uh, at the moment. But for me, you know, when I saw that prejudice and the discrimination, especially at uni, and I challenged the armed forces at Southampton regarding that, the second registrar of the, of the university said, but the discrimination is legal. And I thought, well, wait a minute here, then we need to change the law. And that was my, my key moment about why I needed to be a lawyer, a barrister, to be able to change the law. Because through legal change, at that time, did I see social change. Because a lot of the cases, you know, the armed forces case, it wasn't the Tony Blair government which, changed, which led the change. It was the fact that cases were taken to Strasbourg. Yeah? Yeah. yeah, it wasn't the parliamentary changing the age of consent. It was because you had you in Sutherland and you had all the Stonewall young men go to the European Court of Human Rights. So for me, it was, it was showing that you get changed through litigation. That's one of my three favourite words are litigation, litigation, litigation. Having made that profound commitment, in practice, how did you then follow the path to end up being a barrister? Well, what, what happened was, you know, as I said, I transferred to politics and law. Civil engineering was square peg into a round hole. And I... I was doing a lot of debating, public speaking, student politics. And then once I changed politics to law, it was just the floodgates open. And this was my passion. I loved the politics and law mixed. 
But then what happened was I started having relationships with people of my own gender. And my friends at Southampton didn't say that I should die, didn't say that I should be punished. And it got very, very difficult because I started having relationships in 95, came home to Worthing, had to live this double life. So okay. one week before my first year exams, because I was trying to educate, being you know silly as I am, so I brought a few movies home to watch with my mother, priest and the wedding banquet. And my mother was, you know, she's not a stupid individual. She's saying, okay, <laughs> you're trying to say something to me. And on the 31st of May, 1996, she said, Chauvin, are you gay? Uh, I had a very good friend of mine who'd come out beforehand. I was telling her about him. And, you know, my mother had a lot of respect for him because he'd done very well. Said, are you gay? And if you are, don't worry, I'll continue to love and support you. I said, yes. And this was the big breakthrough moment to be able to tell somebody who was, you know, the one big barrier in being able to be my true self. Following day, 1st of June, she said, okay, you've got two options. Either you don't have sex for the next five years and we get you married off after that, or you have to leave the home. And I didn't have much of an option because I couldn't lie anymore. I couldn't leave this double life after having disclosed to her. And as my friends joked months later, you know, you being celibate for five minutes would be a miracle, let alone five years. <laughs> um, so I, to cut a long story short, I was told that I was to leave and never come back. And uh, my all my possessions were packed in... 18 cardboard boxes and 19 dustbin bags and a letter by my mother's solicitor saying that I was disinherited and disowned until I recounted my behaviour and practices. So I was kicked out of home. I had nothing. Armistead Morpin says we have two types of family. Uh, we have our biological family and our chosen family. And I was very lucky. I'd lost everything. I had no money. I had no biological family. I had my brother wouldn't you know, call me faggot over the phone uh, when uh, he interrupt a conversation I was trying to have with my mother. My cousins were ringing up saying, just, just do what you're supposed to do and do what your mother wants you to do. And I said, I can't. This, this is not the life I can ever live. Yeah. Yeah. And, and luckily, the people, you know, my chosen family, the lecturers at Southampton, Natalie, Paul Meredith, they became my chosen family and supported me. And Caroline Thomas is no longer with us. Every time, I, you know, I, I had no money. I went to huge debt. I even had to get financial assistance from the university through the hardship fund to just pay my rent. Um, I even went to the local you know, Tesco's in Eastleigh that summer and I didn't even have money for a loaf of bread. But then I could be me. And uh, you know, those people around me kept on driving me. Caroline Thomas, every time I went down in the dumps, she said, look, you've got so much more to give. It wasn't like you need to do this for yourself, but you have to go out there and change this world. And that really drove me. And, and as I said, I, I love the subject area. So the people around me, believing in me. I mean, at, at times, my friends thought I'd, I'd not be, you know, friends used to joke saying, look, if you don't, you know, one of my good friends, Steve said, well, if you don't become a barrister, you can always become a BBC children's presenter. You know, that was a, that was a joke of my, my friends. I went on national TV and radio talking about my experience of coming out. I did chat shows. Uh, you can see them online if you, if you want to. And talking about the experience of having been rejected by my family, thrown out with everything, losing everything, but saying you have to live your true self. So that drove me. That was my motivation. That was my passion to be able to go out there. And people believed me. So I, I ended up graduating. And I was very much into politics. I founded the Intercool Society, did a lot of public speaking and debating, as I said, and really started to drive change. You know, one of my very key memories when I was a five-year-old is one Christmas standing up and asked to recite Goldilocks and the Three Bears. And it wasn't just the talking, the telling of the story. I mean, this is what advocacy is about. It's not just a telling of the story. It's about all my friends around me. When I looked around, they were listening to every single word I said. 
And that's the power of advocacy, the power of persuasion. So I knew that I was a storyteller. I could tell a story and take people with me. So, so the bar was very much a natural route for me because, you know, I joined in a temple and as I said, I had no money. So, you know, the inn believed in me and gave me a major scholarship. You know, that's 10,000 pounds in 1998, which was paid for my fees for bar school. There's no way I could have gone to bar school without that. Because remember, I had no money, I had nothing. My family had rejected me. So without the support of the inn, I mean, I remember going to my, this was 1998, February the 14th, you know, going to the inn scholarship interview and Lord Justice Shyman and all these big judges. I knew nothing about that. I was a nun Oxbridge student. And, you know, I talked about rules and the veil of ignorance. I talked about gay rights and what drove me to do what I did. And the inn was very forward looking in that way because they had a queer, personal colour, first generation immigrant, non Oxbridge, you know, and they awarded me one of their top scholarships, which enabled me to go by. I got a first. And then I was very lucky because, I, you know, I do believe that you will get through. And I say luck in, in a very broad sense because I was committed to succeed. What I was always told as a young child is aim for the stars and you'll fall the trees, aim for the trees, you'll fall on the ground. So always aim for the stars. And I applied for 12 sets in what was called patch and one outside patch. I got interviewed by 12 out of 13 sets. I got final rounds of seven sets and I got four offers of pupillage the first time around. And I ended up setting on Dad Street and, uh, for my first six in Garden Court, two Garden Court as it was then for my second six. So, you know, I was an outsider. I always knew I was an outsider, but I knew that I was committed to drive change. And the, the primary purpose of that change was to empower myself as a human being. But more importantly, if that helped empower others, that's what really made it exciting. Perhaps one of the things that your story shows is that in a funny way, the bar is full of lots of outsiders. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, that's what makes us advocates. We are performers. The best human rights lawyers I've seen are those, I mean, Iris Baron Young, the politics of difference, pure radical political theorist said, look, those of us who are from these underrepresented communities have a duty to advocate for our rights. Yeah. You see the best advocates. It's, it's because we've had to, suffer hardship in our what was comparative hardship i mean the hardship i suffered is nothing compared to my clients my refugee clients i've never had to be curative rape or torture or anything like that but i have a mindset to say i know i mean some of my clients say you know what makes us breathe or makes us silent you know to be able to connect with my clients is it's not like it's something akin to meds acting i like to get under the skin of my clients even though legal aid does not provide funding for that conference with your barrister before the hearing. All my clients get to to meet me beforehand because I need to get to know what makes them tick. And then they need to connect with me to be able to have that trust as their advocate. Because without that, how can they really feel that you can really drive home what their needs, what their goals, what their, their, their lives need? Because what I think you're getting at is something that many lawyers or many people who aspire to the law perhaps don't fully understand, which is that when we are the voice of our client in court, we are there as a privilege, but also as a duty to represent what they need to say, what they would want to say, what has to be said, however unpopular, however difficult. And at the end of the day, win or lose, they have to have had their case properly put which reflects them. Absolutely. I mean, there's two roles, I see, as as an advocate, to be a storyteller and an interpreter. 
I tell the story of my clients, their narratives, yeah? So I have to give them the space, the safe space to be able to tell their stories. But I'm also an interpreter because I interpret their stories into the foreign language called the law. So my USP is to be the mouthpiece for those who knew the words but have no voice. That's been my, that's what I said at my Kennedy Scholarship interview for Harvard. You know, I said, that's what, get, I was asked the question, what makes you go, get out of bed on a Monday morning? To be the mouthpiece for those who know the words but have no voice. So I always believe there's an interplay in relation to that need to drive change. I, I'm not satisfied. I, I know the Bar Council and you know the, the President of the Supreme Court, Lord Reed, said only last week to Clive Coleman that lawyers only give effect to the law. But we're not just applying the law. Law is sexy. I know where the law should be. If I was satisfied the way the law was 20 years ago when I was first of all doing LGBT cases, it's all about sex. You know, as long as you don't get uh, caught having sex with your boyfriend in Tehran by the Basiji, the religious police, you can go back to Tehran. Yeah. And to to reduce the lives of queer people to sex. I mean, if only, you know, if only my life was just about sex as a queer person. I'm sorry. I have to worry about the mortgage. I get told by my husband continuously. That's what married life is about. But the point is, it's about going outside your bedroom into the outside world and being free. So for me, it's about knowing where the law should be, not being satisfied with where the law is now, and using the law as a rights vehicle to affect social, legal and cultural change. I want you to put yourself in the mind of somebody with your passions, my passions as well, who's 17, and is thinking, do I commit myself to being a lawyer? How difficult is it? What advice would you give to the 17-year-old, the 20-year-old who's looking at the law, trying to see, is it all fuzzy? Is it all white men? Or is it, in fact, an engine of change? Follow your heart. And your heart is telling you that it can be an engine of change? There's so much energy and positive energy, as it should be going in at the moment to make sure that those entering the profession have, especially, and I hate this word, non-traditional backgrounds. What is, we talk about non-traditional backgrounds, but in effect, the, the mould is the exception. When we look at the statistics, the figures, the majority of people don't go to Eton or Harry. I mean, I have to, for full disclosure, I ended up getting an exhibition to Lansing for two years. It's interesting when you say we talk about glass ceiling. Yes, clearly I've, I've shattered a glass ceiling by being here. And I love the work I do because I empower my clients to save their lives and change their lives. I love the fact that, you know, as, as you know, I, I'm very present on social media, on Twitter, on LinkedIn. And I have clients who come out of the woodwork 15 years later and say, do you remember me? I've now just got my degree in criminal justice. My, one of my famous clients, Edron Gilbert, has just passing the bar exam. She wants to become a barrister. On the night I won the Lally Awards, I went to the restaurant with my, my husband and friends and the waiter at our table was somebody I'd got asylum for 10 years beforehand in Kosovo. It's one of those, you know, mixing the personal and the professional. For me, there is no divide, you know, hence why when I, you know, we do go on vacation, my husband knows that I will be there watching my emails and working in a hotel room, drafting grounds at times. For me, it's not about work. It's about having a vocation. It's about having a drive. Yeah, you don't stop thinking I don't stop thinking about my, my cases. I'm, one of the, the career advice I do give to anybody going to the bar is that if you 
don't have a boyfriend or girlfriend by the time you've got pupillage, get one, because if they survive pupillage, they're there for life. And my husband's background's in you know, interior design. He co-owns a property management company and he doesn't do law. But, you know, he, he knows what drives me. And it's really, you know, one of the best pieces of advice I had as the first six people by Gavin Miller QC, as he now is, prioritise your personal life. I ensure that I ring fence parts of my personal life. So therefore, my professional life doesn't take it over. But I do tell that 17 and 20, 20 year old, if you are really passionate, I'm not, I'm not talking about some of the dry areas of law. And clearly, there are no dry areas of the law and boring areas of the law. But if you want to do this area of law, and uh, you know, I'm a legal aid lawyer through and through. You know, I, I still do those cases in the first year tribunal for £320. And that's what really annoys the government, that people like me still do those cases because they thought they could get us, push us out because we don't get paid money for it. But I still do those cases because we are there to drive change and empower the most vulnerable because that is the role of the law. The law is there is, is to, as a sword and a shield to empower the most vulnerable and, and the most marginalised. And we have to make sure that we, not, it's not just a, a, a little slither of a ray of light through that door, but the doors are flung open. And that's what we're there to do. Charlton, your passion for justice comes through loud and clear. And also the profound understanding that a law that you can't enforce is not worthy of being a law in the first place. That we have to be the means of allowing the vulnerable to enforce the laws. I'm going to ask you, therefore, what you make of the current disparaging way that the government are talking about activist lawyers. I am. Uh, I was surprised that the reaction to the labelling of. No, no. Let's go back. One of the lessons learned in the Windrush scandal was that the Home Secretary and the Home Office and the government will start listening. That the one great thing out of the report about the review was that the Home Office will take internally the training to ensure that those BME, people of colour, Windrush generations, that what happened to them will never happen again. Yeah. So it was quite ironic that having said that there will be no longer implementation or policies which will discriminate on basis of colour, that we now go and attack the lawyers who represent those vulnerable and marginal groups. It was a hypocrisy. You're basically telling the Windrush generations or those people, you're saying that you have learned the lessons that whilst we're going to implement these policies to you, we're going to target and demonise those people who provide you the representation and the access routes to empower yourself and be safe. So when the, those words came out saying demonising activist lawyers and left-wingers uh, and now do-gooders, um, I was surprised that the reaction to that by the Bar Council and other organisations was in effect saying activist lawyers are bad things. Yeah? So we say they're not activist lawyers, they're just lawyers who enforce the law. Well, unfortunately, in immigration and asylum work, the majority of us who work predominantly, well, predominantly or only for migrants are activists. We have to be activists because we have to use the law in such a way that it does turn to be political. We're not watching in the sidelines. So we have to be within. I mean, that's why my practice 
is not purely centered on litigation. I have the academic element. That's why my, my doctorate, my, my going out there, not only in the UK, but internationally. I have my policy element. And there's a huge public service barristers and lawyers can have within the policy arena to shape policy and law. And then I have my litigation. So for me, I think it was a missed opportunity because I think what we should have said, you know, and the Law Society was just as bad as the Bar Council, was saying that actors as lawyers is a good thing. That activism is a positive thing. That by being activists, we're empowering and protecting. So in effect, I think that was a missed opportunity to actually, you know, in effect, supported the demonization and the marginalization of the activist lawyer. Because I completely agree because, you know, I, I, I am an activist lawyer in the medical sense. I, I'm an activist lawyer for mental health patients. I sit on the BMA Ethics Committee Absolutely. to promote ethics in medicine. Yeah. Um, I'm acting for the, the victims in the infected blood inquiry. Why? Why did I act for four years to assist the victims when there was no legal aid? Absolutely. For exactly the same reasons. I, I, John, well, I think, but, but, David, the important thing is that in my policy work, I mean, I, I, you know, I, as I said, I, I've never taken a brief on behalf of the Home Office, but I work with the Home Office to ensure that the UK complies with its international obligations under the Refugee Convention on Human Rights. And I go to these meetings, and as you can imagine, without providing the, the content, because of obvious reasons, you can imagine I'm very animated. And I'm still invited back to those meetings. So, so therefore, at a government departmental level, they are ready to engage with activist lawyers to improve the service they provide. So we have to become, in effect, deaf to the political rhetoric. I mean, we knew the tweet, which originally came from the Home Office, that was deleted, but then repeated by Priti Patel, the Home Secretary. And then we have the speeches at the Conservative Conference by both the Home Secretary and the Prime Minister. But what is, if we are do-gooders and they're not do-gooders, well, what's the opposite of a do-gooder? A do-harmer. Exactly. Well, exactly. So do they want to be characterised as people who do harm? Well, we could go on talking about this all night and we don't have all night, I'm afraid. It's been absolutely fascinating to open a window to your soul. And thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with us. I'd like to ask you one last thing, which is this. What's the best piece of advice you think you can give to somebody who wants to follow the same path that you followed and end up as an activist barrister? Follow your heart and keep your head held high. I couldn't agree more. It's been a privilege, Shelvin. Thank you very much indeed for sharing your thoughts. I know how valuable they will be to people listening. And I wish you every success in continuing the fight on behalf of those who really need your services. Thank you, David.